Well, thank you, Huey, for reading the scriptures for us and leading us into prayer. Just a few more announcements um, for today. It is indeed a special Sunday, and we have a new communion policy. We ask that if you are a first-time visitor, or if you have not sat in our communion service before, we ask that you would sit in with the welcoming ministry. They'll be located here right after service, and they want to talk to you and just... We have our communion service for believers, for followers of Christ. And as a Christian, if you want to participate in our communion service, we ask that you would share your testimony, affirm the cardinal, the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith, and we would love to invite you so that we might partake in the bread and the cup together as fellow believers in Christ. Right after service, there will be a meeting right here to my right side, and you're more than welcome to join us. Secondly, every communion Sunday, we have our book table. And we have it out there because we want to encourage our people to read good Christian books. What are good Christian books? They're pretty much sermons on paper. Godly men who have, and women as well, who have studied the text, studied the scriptures, and gleaned precious insights into the Word of God, uh, coupled with their wisdom and their experience uh, from generations ago, even the present authors, they've presented them in book form for us to be blessed and encouraged with. So we have a book tale for you guys, and we encourage every one of you at least to go by and consider what books are out there. I'll recommend um, these two personally. You know, Heart of Anger. I read this about a year ago, and I would say it's a mandatory book for all married couples, and especially for parents. If you are parents out there, if you know parents, who are struggling with children, raising children, this is a book to get. I would say there are two mandatory books for Christian parenting. It's uh, Shepherding Your Child's Heart by Ted Tripp and Heart of Anger by Lou Priolo. And don't let the, the title mislead you when he comes this February to speak at a retreat. I'm going to suggest humbly that he change the title because you can't really give this book as a gift to someone. I think you need this, or your son needs this. You know, you don't want, you want to be like something positive, how to raise a godly child or something. But the book is not just about anger. It really is about uh, training, instruction, discipline. It really exposes its proverbs, the wisdom of Solomon. I mean, I learned so much from just this one book. And I think... As a single person even, just as a Christian, I believe reading will be a great benefit to you just on how to shepherd your own heart with your own sins, your internal monologue, internal dialogue we have where when we are angry or frustrated or going through difficult times, a great resource for all believers. Second book I recommend is Faithfulness and Holiness, the biography by J.I. Packer, a biography of J.C. Ryle. Now, there are, I love reading biographies. One, I like reading war books because these soldiers who sacrifice themselves in battle, they inspire me. They remind me of the major things in life, not to get in the thick of thin things. It reminds me the importance of courage and importance of self-sacrifice and loyalty to your fellow man, uh, fellow soldiers. And also Christian biographies, because they do the same thing. They remind me of the important things of life. In 1 Corinthians 15.23, it says, Bad company corrupts good character, right? But a lot of people take that verse out of context. The, the 
a section before it says, the clause is, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. We are influenced by people we hang out with, our friends, right? Well, the opposite is true. Good company molds good character, helps good character. And that's why I read books too, right? Men like J.C. Ryle, they are spiritual giants. They are godly men. I read them so they might be my friends, right? They might be my company, my companions, who will encourage me in the race and help me to be a godly, godlier man. So these two books are on, for, on sale today, 20% off, right? Good Christmas um, gifts as well. I have these books, not for me, but someone else. <laughs> but encouraged reading for all the saints. Well, this morning, let's go to our study in the Gospel of John. We, we belabored this point several times this morning. It is a special Sunday. Therefore, I have a limited time in my preaching this Lord's Day. Uh, I was gonna, I was thinking to myself, you know, hey, I should be bold, you know. <laughs> Blessed are you, men shall hate you, insult you, revile you, say all manners of evil against you because you proclaim a sermon for one hour, right? But I, I didn't want to do that to Huey and all of you folks. The food's getting cold, so the limited time, I want to just go through this text, actually verses 10 through 19, and I just want to present to you some very simple truths from our Lord's dialogue with the Jewish leaders. I want you to journey with me back in time, about 2,000 years ago, to a country called Israel, to a place, a city called Jerusalem. A brief bio, a background, here's our Lord, he's in Galilee, upper northern part of Israel. His brothers encouraged our Lord, Jesus' half-brothers, to go down to Jerusalem with them to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. One of the reasons for that was so that he might perform his miracles in Jerusalem and become a major public figure and that he would be coronated as king and crowned as king of Israel and lead a revolt against the government of Rome. Well, our Lord said the time is not right in verse 10. He will not go down with them. But verse 10 tells us that when his brothers had gone up to the feast... Then he himself also went up. And people say, well, why are they going up? It's because Jerusalem is you know, on a mountainside. It's really on a large hill. So when you went to Jerusalem, when you go to Jerusalem, you're literally going up. They're going north to south. But as they're going into Jerusalem, they're climbing up a mountain. That's where they're going up. But when Christ went, he went up not publicly, as it were, but he went in secret. Now we want to know, that he went in secret only in the sense of his entrance into the city. It was an eight-day feast, four days into it, in the middle of the feast. He goes to Jerusalem, but not publicly, but in secret. But once he's in Jerusalem, he teaches publicly. He's not hiding in Jerusalem because he's afraid of the Jewish leaders. No, verse 14, he went to the temple courts, and he began to teach the crowds that were gathered for this annual feast of tabernacles. Now consider with me that Jerusalem is packed with pilgrims from all over Israel. This was a mandatory feast for all who lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem, but all many faithful Jews throughout Israel, even throughout the world, made this pilgrimage to worship God 
to, to dwell in tents and to make sacrifices on this holy week. The population of Jerusalem swelled for these eight days and it culminated on the last day, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement when the high priest would enter the holiest of holies and make an atoning sacrifice for the sins of Israel. Well, our Lord entered Jerusalem in this context, in crypto, in Greek, in secret, but He would reveal Himself publicly in the ministry of teaching and preaching in the temple of God. Now, as, as he was in Jerusalem, verse 11, the Jews, the Jewish leaders, therefore, were seeking him at the feast. And they were saying, where is he? The Jewish leaders were lying in wait for him. They suspected, they had been planning this. He's going to come to Jerusalem. He's going to show himself. He's going to present himself during the feast. And that is when we will arrest him and murder him. So they're all waiting, where is this Jesus? But attention, attention towards Jesus was not limited just to the Jewish leaders. In fact, our Lord was the topic of conversation among the multitudes. The masses of people that were gathered in Jerusalem were focused on one man, and that man was Jesus Christ. Their conversations, their dialogues, centered around our Lord's identity and character. Verse 12, there was much grumbling among the multitudes. Much grumbling. There was a controversy. Dissenting uh, uh, views, dissenting uh, opinions about Christ. Some were saying He is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, He leads the multitude astray. They were serving and bawling back and forth within this a mob of people concerning the true identity of Christ, and yet in the midst of all this talk, verse 13, yet no one was speaking openly of Him for fear of the Jews. Now, who is John referring to? John is referring to those who are there who believed in Christ. In that crowd, there were disciples of Christ, but they were disciples in secret. They're like Nicodemus in John chapter 3, going to Christ at night because he was afraid of the Pharisees. Well, likewise, these were followers of Christ because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. They dared not say anything. They remained silent. Consider this, that our Lord's enemies were bold in their declaration that He is demon-possessed, that He is a Samaritan, that He is leading people astray, at the same time, the followers of Christ, they were not bold. They were silent. Well, verse 14, when it was now the middle of the feast, our Lord went into the temple and He began to teach. This is Herod's temple, a magnificent structure that towered over all others in Jerusalem. Our Lord went to the outer court of the temple where pious Jews would gather. And they would hear the teachings of the law. They would discuss religious matters. They would come together and dialogue about the Torah, about the Mishnah, about the oral tradition, about the Talmud that is collected later, but that were, that were, that were being circulated at this time. And they were, they were just dialoguing about the Word of God, the will of God, about Israel and God's plan for salvation. Our Lord went to the midst of this and He began to speak and teach to all who would listen and expectedly, a great crowd gathered around him. I mean, imagine if you're in Jerusalem at this time, 
And you had the opportunity to hear the teachings of Christ by Christ Himself. Here is the Master Teacher. Here is the Logos of God, the Word of God, the revelation of God in flesh, sitting with men and teaching them the truth of God. I mean, He is the one who gave authority to Moses. He is the one who gave wisdom to Solomon. Where does Solomon get his wisdom? He got it from God. And God is sitting in the outer temple, outer courts of the temple, teaching Himself. It was beautiful. His, his teaching was magnificent. So much so that even the Jewish leaders, whose full-time occupation was dialoguing about the scriptures, even they were amazed. They marveled, NASB says. They were taken aback. Verse 15, they were marveling, the Jewish leaders. How has this man become learned, having never been educated I mean, these men, their lives were devoted to teaching and dialoguing about the law. And, I mean, they've heard their share of hacks in their day, right? Guys who memorize the great Shema of Deuteronomy 6 and portions of Proverbs, and they come and they pontificate their little knowledge, and they know these guys are nothing, right? And, and they've, they've, they're immersed in this ministry of this work of teaching and, and they're not surprised that people knew the Bible knew the Hebrew Old Testament many Jews memorized portions of the scriptures but they were surprised at Christ because he was head and shoulders above anyone that they had ever heard before our Lord was carrying on a sustained discourse in the manner of the rabbis while quoting verbatim the scriptures his mastery of the scriptures, his power of persuasion were undeniable. And yet, what amazed him was he had not been trained in any of the great rabbinical schools of the day. He had no formal education, no formal training. The literal Greek version is he has no letters. He doesn't know letters. He, has, he hasn't studied. He hasn't been taught by any rabbi in Israel. They were wondering, how could a man who had not sat at the feet of any of the masters of Israel hold his own so ably with the most gifted teachers of their time? And he was speaking with such authority. I mean, they had never heard this before. Jews were all into quoting other rabbis or quoting rabbinical schools or rabbinical traditions. It's like a doctoral dissertation. One paragraph... Right? One third of the page, two thirds footnotes. That was their dialogue. They're always quoting someone else. Well, our Lord's dissertation here was zero footnotes. Nothing in his bibliography. He spoke with authority. This is what I teach. This is my doctrine. Didache. This is my teaching. This is, these are my words. He spoke with such authority. They were marveling. They were taken aback. And therefore, the enemies of Christ, they had only two options to choose from. They, they considered only two possibilities. First consideration was, okay, our Lord Jesus must have been enrolled as a student in some rabbinical school that we don't know of. They went around. Anybody know where this guy got his degree, where he went to school? That's one thing they considered. Or secondly, that he is simply spouting his own ideas. He's making it up. He's winging it. He's just talking out of the top of his head. 
And whatever he's saying, he's making it up as he goes. And because they had researched this, they had asked their other rabbis, and they knew he didn't go to any formal school, they concluded the second must be true. He is the inventor. He is the sole authority. He is making this up. He is the inventor of his own doctrine, of his teaching. That was the accusation, I believe, that was leveled against Christ. And that is why in verse 16, our Lord answers them. He says in verse 16, My teaching is not mine. My teaching is not mine, but His who sent me. He states clearly that His doctrine, didache, is not a product of His own private invention. It is not the product, it is not the result of His own isolated mind. It is the doctrine of God the Father who sent Him. This was His consistent testimony throughout the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John. And that was His indictment against the Jewish leaders. You claim to be sons of God. You claim to be followers of Moses. You claim to obey the Old Testament, obey the Torah. These are the scriptures that testify concerning me. God is my Father who sent me. The words I am speaking are His. I am the fulfillment of the Bible, the Old Testament. So our Lord's indictment is, Your Father is not God. You are sons of the devil. You don't worship Moses. Moses will stand in judgment against you. Later on he says in verse 9, You don't keep a single law. You have broken every law of Moses though you claim to be a follower of Moses. Our Lord was saying, my teaching is not my own, it's from the Father. Consistent testimony throughout the Gospel of John. John twelve forty nine. I do not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. Not just the form, uh, not just the words themselves, but the way, how to say it, the form of the words was given by God the Father. John 14.10 The words I say to you are not just my own words. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing His work. John 14.25-24 John 14.24 He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. This is our Lord's declaration that these are God's teachings, that these are the Father's words and therefore carries the Father's authority. You know, I think we ought to understand the implication of this verse. The Jewish leaders missed it. And it's too late for them. But for you and I sitting in this room, we need to understand the implication that, implications that what the Lord is teaching is from God. The direct implication is that because the source of our Lord's teaching is from God, whoever rejects our Lord's message rejects God. If you reject Christ, reject Christ's teaching, you reject God. Whatever religion, whatever faith men might hold, there is complete consistency, the doctrine of Christ and doctrine that comes from God. That's why our Lord said in Matthew 10.40, He who receives you receives me, 
And he who receives me, receives the one who sent me. Whoever receives the Son, receives God the Father. Now, at this point in the dialogue, I mean, it's not, John does not tell us this. It's not in the text. But I don't think I'm interpreting the white parts here. I think it's safe to say that the Jews were not convinced. Would you guys agree? I mean, if they were convinced, they wouldn't have crucified him, right? If they said, yeah, you are teaching, you're teaching us from God. They, they, they didn't accept it. They weren't convinced. They, they, their position, they didn't move in their position. The subsequent dialogue, even this chapter, tells us that these leaders weren't, weren't convinced. In fact, they wholeheartedly reject this claim. They say, no way. Your teaching is not from God. You're making it up yourself. Well then, that question, that, that raises a question. Why is it? Why couldn't these Jewish leaders discern that our Lord was teaching God's truth? Why didn't they see it? How is this possible? I mean, these men were steeped in stu- the study of the law. They knew God's word. They prayed to God. They gave alms. They, they made offerings. They made sacrifices. How was it that the leaders of God's chosen people could not discern that our Lord's doctrine originated from God the Father? Well, the answers are given in verses 17 through 19. The first answer is found in verse 17. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. Now what a difficult verse. How are we to understand verse 17? I came across this verse early on in my Christian life. Even as a young Christian, as I was reading to the Gospel of John, perhaps my second time ever, I landed on verse 17 and I knew that's a jugular verse. That's an important verse. So many things are tied and interrelated with that truth that is contained in that single verse. It touches upon, and you guys see it, it touches upon how one comes to faith. Does it not? It touches upon the authority of Scripture. It, it, it talks about the theory of knowledge, epistemology. I own the seminary, I get to use some fancy words right, to justify my four years there. Right? Epistemology. Right? How do we know what we know? It, it ties to verse 17. It talks about how truth is determined. Who, de- who determines what is truth and what is error? And even apologetics, defending the faith. If you read in any of these disciplines, you will know that, that these books that are related to these disciplines refer quite often to John 7.17. Now, this morning, we do not have the time, nor is it advantageous for our purposes to get into all of that. Uh, we just want to look at two aspects of what our Lord is saying here. There's two aspects. First and foremost, I believe the Lord here is declaring that His teaching is self-authenticating. Our Lord declares the self-authenticating nature of His teaching. His teaching validates itself. It is a radical message. I mean, in our relativistic mindset, in our culture, in our society, it is a hard thing to really grasp 
It's it's so radical. He's saying, my teaching validates itself. Now, follow with me. Consider this. You would think that our Lord made this claim, my teaching is from God. It's not from myself. You would think a person makes this claim, then people investigate the claim. They verify it with other witnesses. That's how it's done in the world, right? You make a claim, they examine it in light of other verifiable evidences, they study it in view of other facts, and if it passes all these other tests, then the person's testimony is acknowledged as true, right? Now, if a person makes a claim, and it is inconsistent with facts and evidences and other people's testimonies, if it's inconsistent then the claim is rejected as false. This is a method used by modern sciences. Observation, experiment, gather facts and data, finalize a conclusion and make a determination. Is that what our Lord is saying? You test the Word of God. If you have an NIV version, it says, if anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak of my own. NIV leads us to believe that if you just, that Pascal's wager, right? Just obey God. If you're a non-Christian, you don't know the Bible, you're not sure Jesus is God, you don't know if this is true or not, just blind leap of faith, obey God, and you will, God will tell you if it's true or not. Is that what our Lord is saying? I don't believe so. I believe NIV uh, mistranslates a key word in verse 17. It's the only version that, that translates that word into chooses. New American Standard. If any man is willing to do his will. Right. John, uh, New King James. If anyone wants to do his will. The Net Bible and Bible.org. Because right, Dura turned me on to it. Verse, if anyone wants to do God's will. What our Lord is saying is talking about desire, talking about wish, about wanting. The emphasis is not on the doing, obeying God's word. The stress is on anyone who has a desire, the willingness to do God's word. It is a promise, I believe, that if anyone desires to do God's will, they will know the truth. They will know that Jesus' teaching is from God. If anybody has an inkling, a willingness, a wish to obey God, to follow the Old Testament, if they read Genesis 1-1 and they want to follow that, they want to obey that, they have a desire to do that and honor God, they will know right away that what Jesus is saying is true. Such a radical departure from our mindset, even from these Jewish leaders. He's, our Lord was saying, I, what I'm saying is true. Right. And who's my confirmation? God is. How can you know, if you, if you have a willingness to obey God, then you know my teaching comes from God. Right. Now, you think about it, that's so right, isn't it? Isn't that just right? The truth must ultimately be self-authenticating. The Constitution, we hold these truths to be self-evident. 
We're not going to give any proofs. We're not going to give any evidences. We're not going to support that statement by trying to prop it up and saying it's true. It is self-evident. There is no external confirmation necessary. All men are created equal, period. Therefore, right, that's what truth is. And that's what our Lord is doing. He's not catering to their level of, okay, what kind of confirmations do you need? Evidences. Right? Who should I quote? Right? What schools or biblical traditions should I uh, glean some authority from? No, our Lord does not appeal to any authority outside of Himself. He says, I am the truth, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our Lord being God, He is truth, and His words are truth. And He says, therefore, anyone who has a desire, even a desire to, to do God's will, will know instantly that what He is saying is true. That the Holy Spirit will give an inward testimony, giving assurance that our Lord's teaching is from God and God alone. Radical message. So first and foremost, in verse 17, our Lord declares the self-authenticating nature of His teachings. But secondly, with the same statement, our Lord indicts. He judges guilty the spiritual corruption of the leaders of Israel. In verse 17, our Lord exposes their utter unwillingness to do God's will. Our Lord says, this is the fact, this is true. That anyone who has a desire to do God's will will know it's from God. The Jewish leaders rejected that it was from God. So what is our Lord saying? You have no desire to do God's will. You never have. Right? Isn't that amazing? These religious leaders looked upon as holy men, righteous men, Pharisees who were zealous for the law. Our Lord said, because you reject my teaching, you have no desire for God. Their unwillingness to do God's will is the reason that they do not recognize that Jesus' doctrine is from God. This is why they rejected Christ. This is why they rejected Christ's claim. It's not because of an intellectual reason. It's because, again, a moral reason. It's a sin issue. With all their religious fanfare, with all their prayers, with their, all their reading of Scripture and memorizing Scripture, they had no willingness, no desire, no hope, no wish to do God's will. They had rejected Christ because their spiritual externals, it's all a farce, it's all a lie. It's empty. That's the first statement defending his claim. Second is in verse 18. He points to the righteousness of the teacher. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Our Lord... He was seeking God's glory, not himself. His goal was to speak accurately, faithfully, exactly what God the Father had given him. And through it all, through his whole ministry, he gave all the glory to God. 
He didn't want anything from His disciples. He didn't want anything from the people. He didn't want the power. The Pharisees wanted the power. He didn't want it. The Pharisees wanted the popularity, the fame. Our Lord didn't want it. Our Lord's death on the cross, His voluntary giving of Himself on the, on the cross is proof that He was living for God's glory, not His own. Our Lord did not use His words to gain a personal following, but rather He urged men to follow God whom He served. He had no need to deceive. He speaks therefore with integrity. His speech is righteous. Our Lord speaks of Himself and of His integrity as He speaks of the Father. And He points to Himself. Look at my character. I'm seeking the glory of God, not of myself. If anyone seeks the honor of himself, there is a sign that what they're saying is not true. The final one is pointed towards the leaders of, Ju- of Israel once again. Again, he exposes the hypocrisy of his critics. The hypocrisy of his critics. Verse 19, Did not Moses give you the law? That was their great uh, boast, that they were followers of Moses. Yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Moses gave them the law, and yet they all failed to keep that law. They were, they were trying to murder Christ. Why? Because He healed on the Sabbath. All the way in John 5, six months ago during the Passover, He healed the paralytic, remember, in John 5 on the Sabbath. And because it was a day of rest, they they considered Him breaking the law of God. They wanted to murder Him for that. Well, He turns the table. You profess to be followers of Moses, and yet none of you obey the law of Moses. Each and every one of you has broken the law of God. Why are you singling me out instead of one another? Every violation of the law that they committed was deserving of death. And yet, they just want to kill Christ. Exposes their hypocrisy. Exposes that their intention is not upholding the law at all. It's hatred, as we said last week, because our Lord exposed their evil, their wickedness. Well, just to close our time, a few final thoughts. I think the central claim here is in verse 16. That our Lord's teaching, didache, His doctrine, has come from God the Father. A thought, a few thoughts to close with would be, one of them would be, that rejection of Christ's teaching is rejecting God. If you reject the good news that salvation is found in no one else, that only in Him do we have forgiveness of sins, if you reject this message, you're not just rejecting Christ, you're rejecting God who sent Him, the source of Christ's message. Secondly, I would appeal to um, any unbeliever here this morning, or maybe those who are young in the faith and they're struggling to understand whether the Bible is truth or not, whether the Lord, His teaching is worthy of your trust, worthy of your faith. Maybe this morning you're having a, you're having a difficult time trying to grasp even the meaning of our Lord's message. 
Where is the starting point? Where do you start? It is not just study the Bible. It is not discipline yourself and sit down and read the scriptures and memorize the Bible. It goes to verse 17. Willingness to do God's will. Pray for a humble heart. We'd ask you to humble yourself. Ask God to give you the desire, the willingness. Right? The little light you have, ask God, God, give me a willingness to obey that little light. You do that, and Christ promises the Holy Spirit will reveal Himself to you to give you assurance that the Bible is true, that God's words are true. And then finally, this will go to believers as well. You know, sometimes maybe cornerstone, we study the Bible too much. Right? Dare I say that in the pulpit of cornerstone? You guys know my heart. But dare I say we study the Bible too much. One of the things we notice in our culture is that we're an academic culture. We're all into study, right? We're all pretty much into reading, right? Going to school, we're comfortable in that academic environment. And we kind of bring that into the church. We just sit and we just listen. And it all just becomes accumulation of facts. And we're not into obeying the scriptures. Being doers of the word. Following through on the word of God. Who is better? Christians or a church who know little doctrine and yet they obey it? Or a church that is well taught, well fed? That's all they are. They just know a lot. They know the verses. They know the doctrines. But it ends there. Who is better? Which is better? I think we need to put away our academic caps. And we, as Christians, we need to put on our blue-collar hats. Right? We're here to work as believers. Whatever we know, put that into practice. And then God will grant us more and more understanding and insight into His Word that we might grow. Let's pray. Our Father, we are just humbled that you would teach us such truth to unworthy men and women as us. Lord, we would think that you would give these truths to the wise the pious, the disciplined, the godly people of this world. And yet, you choose the lowly, you choose the foolish, you choose those that are, that are unworthy of such things. Lord, we praise you, God, for who you are, for your, for your truth, giving them to us. Lord, you are a God of truth. You need... No external authority to confirm the truthfulness of your statements. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And it is our joy to follow in your paths. Lord, we pray. We we ask humbly, God, that you will grant us just a, a childlike zeal and passion to have a willingness to obey and to do God's will. In Jesus' name. Amen. If we could have the uh, ushers come forward and take up our offering.
Thank you, Pastor James, for uh, giving us the word. And